my goodness, we've got a guest we've been looking forward to chatting to for quite some time. Dan Martin, OBE, PhD, MBCHB from Leicester, uh, we're Go Midlands, um, and Chief Editor of Jix, Journal of Intensive Care Society. And let's, let's go straight there, Dan. Thank you so, so much for finding the time. We know how busy you are. And this journal keeps you somewhat occupied. It does. Uh, thanks very much, Peter, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, to be here today. It's really great. And we're here sort of bringing the journal uh, to the conference. Um, we are excited to have a, a session later to sort of show some of our best uh, articles for the last year or so. So I think this is a fantastic journal. Of course, I would say that because you took the time to come and talk to us, but I'm saying it because I actually mean it. I, th I think it's a great voice for British intensive care. It is often, and nobody should be ashamed of this, somebody's chance to get their first significant uh, publication. Uh, I've had the joy of writing for it and uh, reviewing for it. And uh, you're now indexed, you're on the way, you're on the march. But how do you keep that secret source of being engaging and popular and, and people's first chance to publish, uh, but with a decent amount of rigor? It is quite a challenge, actually. The, the The journal came from quite humble beginnings, just as a really just a sort of magazine for uh, the society, uh, and then began to publish more and more research. Uh, probably five, six years ago, we became PubMed listed, uh, and as you said, we have now been. Uh, we found out only yesterday, cited with a, with an impact factor. So, uh, so that's really exciting, and and it's a. It's a it's a journey to becoming a bigger and bigger uh, uh, journal, uh, and it, and it's a it's a journey that I've very much enjoyed being a part of. But but at the same time, like you said, it's um, we don't want it just to become a, a, a huge sort of faceless journal. We do want people to be able to approach us and and discuss their work with us because many people, for many people, it is the first uh, journal in which they publish, and we want to to help nurture that relationship, um, particularly with society members who who should feel free. Uh, to come and chat to us because it is their journal. Now, that's why I was stumbling over my words because I wanted to get it right. Every Canadian kid wants to play in the NHL, not the minor leagues. <laughs> but does every journal want to be the New England Journal? I, I, I don't know. And I, I think it's a, it's, a very, it's a difficult market and world out there because you, the publishers are clearly wanting to push you for citations and, uh, you know, and great and, and, and wonderful things. But I think that we always need to remember that we are a society journal. So we are there for our society members and we want to help them to achieve great things. So I think, think for us, it's probably fair to say that we don't want to be the New England Journal of Medicine, but we, we do want to be up there and be competitive with other critical care journals you know, around the world. But we want to maintain that link uh, with our base and our foundation, which is the society that, that funds it and the, and the, the people that send us the, the wonderful work that makes the journal what it is. And I, I think you've got the sweet spot. I think you've but you, let me pick up on something you said. It, I'm paraphrasing. It's a tough world out there or it's, it's hard for journals out there. And is it ever? I mean, let's go through everything. People want everything for free. They want it right away, but they want it to be properly peer reviewed. But people don't necessarily want to spend their entire life peer reviewing for free. Uh, it needs to be online or does it need to be on paper? Maybe you need advertising, but nobody wants to be biased towards the advertisers. Uh, as you can see, I've got no answers here. I've just got concerns, and presumably you have to live those concerns. It, it is, and it's, it's been a real um, learning process for me, having not edited a journal uh, prior to this, uh, and kind of understanding the landscape out there and how to get that balance right has, has been difficult uh, for all of us. As you say, there's a huge amount of work that goes on in the background, 
uh, our editors are all working uh, just just for the love of it. They uh, you know they're not getting paid to to do the job they do, and neither are the peer reviewers. And I think sometimes authors forget that the, it is a small society journal, and they're they're, they're sort of unhappy that the, the turnaround is perhaps not as quick as the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, but they need to understand that everybody has a day job um, and they're doing the best they can. But but nonetheless, we do try to keep a reasonably kind of slick process and turn things around as, as fast as we can. But um, the, the recent pandemic was a real example of the fact that the, uh, everybody had to do their day, day job for a long time. And at the same time, the number of submissions to the journal doubled. So there's twice as much work to do with literally nobody to do it. And I think we're we're still coming off the back of that now and, and, and people are busy and uh, have perhaps sort of changed priorities in their life. So so getting people to remain engaged with the running of journals uh, is a real, real challenge. Well, there was presumably a parallel pandemic of submissions, wasn't there? Was uh, So over the course of 12 months, we saw the submissions double. Um, and interestingly, now what we've seen is a fall in submissions to a little bit below uh, the pre-pandemic level, which is, I think is everybody's just pulling back a bit. Uh, and, and probably they were unable to do other research during the pandemic. And, and there's obviously a time lag for them to get their studies up and running again and, and finish them and, and write them up. So um, so we have seen a bit of a, a downturn now, which we're hoping is very short-lived and we'll pick back up to where we were before the pandemic. Now, gratuitous self-promotion here. Leon and I were lucky enough to write a review article on FOMED, on social media index. How do you value the stuff online without taking away from the traditional sources, but at the same time not get too carried away with the ease of publishing online and the, the sort of lack of peer review and therefore the lack of delay how do you how do you find that sweet spot again? No answers, only questions. No, and it, it, it is a real difficult balance because the you know the post, the process of peer review is not perfect anyway. And and whilst we like to think that peer reviewing can make papers better, and, and in in most situations it does help to improve it if you get the right people. Uh, actually, when you want to get a message out fast, uh, the peer review process may not. Be ideal for that, but but you know you know if you, if that's the sort of unregulated environment and it's a real difficult balance to, to get that right. Um, one of the one of the articles we'll be presenting today in the session uh, this morning uh, sort of touches upon that the, the sort of role of that, that that social media had in medical sort of education and information during the pandemic and and beyond. Well, and, and disinformation, presumably, exactly potentially. That. and uh, So from the dizzying heights of publishing a journal to the dizzying heights of Everest, see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I see. That's a very, <laughs> yeah, very it's, good. It's <laughs> seamless. 2007, you were a part of the Extreme Expedition. You, you, you did some really interesting work on hypoxia. You're still doing really interesting work on hypoxia. I'm not going to say hyperoxia because it isn't, but tell us, uh, what did you learn? How much oxygen is not enough and how much is too much? Great question. I don't know that I can give you the exact answer. but what? I, no? I, I, <laughs> you got 30 <laughs> seconds. I, I think what we managed to do was to show that in, in certain scenarios, you perhaps don't need as much oxygen as we might traditionally have been taught Uh uh, and whilst we're, we're not advocating that everybody uh, sort of walks around with the, the, the PO2s uh, that we kind of saw on the top of Everest, it has made us rethink, if you like, how we should approach patients uh, on intensive care units. And that's led to a whole series of clinical studies now based on the findings that we had from Everest. So we, we, we have really tried to translate what we learnt 
what is it, 16 years ago now, uh, you know, sat on the top of Everest, pushing uh, syringes and needles into each other's groins to see how hypoxemic we were uh, into sort of genuine, tangible uh, patient benefit now. So maybe this is a poor uh, association as well, but I, I like people who do things differently and like people who do different things. Just like the journal's a bit different, studying stuff up Everest is a little bit different. How how'd you pull that off? What do you pop a blood gas analyzer in a rucksack and start walking? <laughs> Literally. Um, but it, I mean, what it was was just this extraordinarily complicated feat of logistics with a very large team of people, uh, all with the same goal. Um, and getting some of that equipment, we took, I think in that year, 22 tons of equipment uh, out to Nepal, uh, you know, half of which came up to base camp and then quite a lot of that up to various um, research camps up the actual mountain. But yes, we did have to take a, a blood gas machine uh, most of the way up the mountain and have people ferrying samples around from the top down to the machine. And it was, uh, we had practiced it a lot of times on other mountains. I mean, the, there's not much margin for error up there, which is the service guys not coming to, to fix the machine when it goes wrong. So you've got to have a sort of encyclopedic understanding of how the, the machine works for when it starts to fail. So it's it, it really was uh, an incredible time um, uh, and incredible data that we managed to get, at least we think so. Um, uh, it's hard to know that we'll ever do it again, but I mean, I think we'd love to, uh, were, were we to be given the opportunity. Oh, it was fabulous stuff. <laughs> Stirred the blood. From blood gas analyzers to pulse oximeters. Tell me about that work. That This is good stuff. Yeah, and it's it, it's not something that I'd put a lot of thought into um, when starting our recent round of sort of clinical research, but the, the UK ROC study where we are looking to see the, the, the effect of a conservative oxygen therapy in, in critically ill patients. Uh, the pandemic was sort of happening around the same time. And, it, and it's, as you probably recall, it's where we started seeing reports in the literature that patients with darker skin tones, it may be that pulse oximeters are not as accurate uh, and actually overreading, which is quite dangerous. We became more and more aware of this during the course of the study. And then uh, here in the UK, the, basically the Department of Health uh, raised it as a serious issue and we were lucky enough to be awarded funding to look into this on quite a big scale. So we're using the UK ROCS uh, framework, so patients who are being randomised into it, we're testing a whole series uh, of pulse oximeters now, seeing how accurate they are compared to blood gases and measuring skin tone with spectrophotometers, so really objectively looking at skin tone. Uh, and trying to do that in almost a thousand patients to, to, to start to really map how accurate or inaccurate some of these pulse oximeters are. Uh, and I think ultimately there needs to be some pretty big changes out there because this is a problem we've known about for a long time, not really chosen to do anything about it. So I think the future is, is about to change with this. So we're not after world exclusives here. Those belong in journals, as we've <laughs> said in the first third of this. Any thing that can be preliminarily shared you can say no comment so we we, we genuinely we've not looked uh, at the data yet what we do is we regularly look to make sure we're collecting data of the right nature so a right the right spread of skin tone across the patients uh, that were recruited into the study the right spread of uh, oxygen values and we're pretty confident we've got what we want there uh, but we we have not joined the two together to, to look at accuracy yet uh, although we have done 
a lot of work looking at the what's out there in the literature and it's pretty clear that everything to date pretty much supports the 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 concept that the pulse oximeters overread the darker that your skin tone is it's going to be a remarkable contribution to the literature if you think about it the number of people that have a pulse oximeter popped on their finger on a daily basis and the old adage that pulse oximetry was the biggest step forward in safety back when it was released agreed uh and i think it you know as i said this is this is a problem we have kind of known about for a long time uh, and it's a real shame that that uh, nobody really engaged in 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 solving this problem but hopefully with the data that we're able to produce it, it's a sort of step on a journey uh to rethinking perhaps how pulse oximeters are designed and validated uh, and the whole process uh sort of that wraps around um the, the sort of approval of, of devices uh, of this nature for, that, that are going to be used on patients. Um, I, th- I think there's a long way to go, but hopefully we'll at least create something that's of value uh, in, in that pathway. So from extremely important subjects back to the extreme physiology, I really need to work on these segues. <laughs> uh, I think you come to our part of the world once a year, once every two years, you do some extreme physiology conferences in Lake Louise, do you not, Dan? Absolutely. And it's a real delight to always come over uh, to Lake Louise. Uh, I, I missed it this year, unfortunately. But usually every other year we're, th- we're over to the hypoxia uh, symposium where the sort of the, the, the world's experts in hypoxia sort of all, all meet for a very uh, exciting conference. There were, there were Nobel Prize winners there this year. It, it's really... A, Fantastic place to be, as you know, uh, but also um, like a like a really amazing conference. So anyone out there interested in hypoxia, I really, really would uh, advise you to go there. And hopefully we'll be back at the next one. And, and the official title is, because I, I feel ashamed that I live a couple of hours down the road and have not heard of this storied event. Unimaginatively, it's just called the Hypoxia Symposium. And that really describes what it is from beginning to end. And it's anything and everything to do with hypoxia from cellular work to sports exercise medicine, climbing, clinical work. The, the great physiologists of our time are usually there. Uh, certainly in the past, we've been there with you know John West, John Severinghouse, Jim Millage. They, 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 uh, sadly, some of those are not with us anymore. But it, it really is the, the, a conference that we, I hope to see you at soon. But, sports exercise. <laughs> uh, there, there's my next pivot. Yeah. Uh, you dropped that Easter egg down for me, so I'll pick that one up. You've done lots of work on Preconditioning before surgery be a, a way to summarise it? Yeah, we, um, we're we engaged in a number of studies at the moment and, and looking to expand that. The I guess the, the, the biggest of those trials we're involved in at the moment with a team here in Birmingham, actually, uh, is, to, is to look at the prehabilitation of patients prior to, to liver transplant surgery. And that's a, it's a really exciting subject to look at. I think when we first started to look at prehabilitation in, in, in patients with severe liver disease, we were just told you, you can't exercise these people. They're, they're too sick and it's too dangerous. And I think that uh, we, we saw that as a challenge, did some preliminary work and now we're doing this big study uh, with the guys at the University of Birmingham. And it's, uh, it's a really exciting thing to be involved in. We've had other, other projects planned uh, to look at other groups prior, prior to uh, major surgery. So it's an uh, exciting uh, uh, sort of other part of, the, uh, of my job. So I really like that. Oh, fantastic. I have no further questions for the defendant, but I do <laughs> wish to give you, you one one last chance yeah. to uh, not plug the journal, but to promote a very valid, very useful, very important journal that is growing and wants to grow the right way. So what does growing the right way look like? What do you want? What submissions do you want? I guess I think the important thing to say is it, it is, as I said before, it, it, it's a journal primarily for our members. It, we want it to be shaped by you. And the way that you do that is to submit work to us. We, we love to receive 
review articles, original research, systematic reviews, thought pieces, editorials, and, and we have a sort of little mixed bag se section called special article, which uh, is sort of meaningless, but it really you can put anything you like in there. And I strongly suggest people contact me if they have ideas, however strange or innovative they think it might be, because we really love new ideas and we, we, it's your journal and we want you to feel that you can publish in it. So please, we really, really encourage anyone to send us things. Review articles in particular, I would say, uh, unusually for a journal, we don't get many uh, submitted. So we'd love to, to receive more and more of those. Uh, so you can help to educate um, our readers. So, so please do that. Now that's the afferent loop. What about the efferent loop? Hopefully a few people are listening to this that think, oh, I haven't uh, reviewed an article in a while. How can I be useful? Should I have another gin and tonic uh, this <laughs> evening before going to bed? Or you know what? Should I pay half an hour, an hour, two hours back to my society and, and, and back to this journal that got me started in the first place? How do people get in touch with you or the journal if they uh, want to pick up that mantle? So it's a good point, actually. And we are so reliant on our peer reviewers. And we have a, a sort of bank of people that we can sort of go to, often people who have published in the journal before because they sit in our database or are reviewed for the journal before, but obviously that's a sort of closed loop. Uh, and we do want people to come to us and say, hey, I'd love to review a paper or get involved or become an editor even. Uh, and, I, and I really, really encourage people to contact me directly. We're always looking to bring on new uh, editors who are happy to, to give some time and to work for the journal, no matter how much or how little you can do, any contribution uh, is useful for us. Uh, so you mu must uh, get in contact with me we're not looking for you know world-renowned academics to do these jobs either. Anyone who thinks that they can bring something new or positive to the journal, we uh, we we would welcome your support. There you go, Tesco. Every bit matters. <laughs> what an absolute pleasure chatting. Thank you, Dan. Thank you to Jix, and uh, thanks for being here at this conference. It's been fun. Thank you. It's wonderful to speak to you. Yeah.